Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. Thank you for being here and thank you for your support as always. If you want to reach out, you know where to reach out. Our social media account is at an immigrant's life. If you want to send an email, our email is at an immigrant's life at yahoo.com. That's where you can message me if, if you or someone you know wants to come on the podcast or if you just want to chat. I am always willing and ready to have an exchange of message. We have such a great episode today, so let's just get to it. In this week's episode, we are thrilled to have a passionate advocate for sustainable fashion joining us. A trailblazing woman in the realm of eco-conscious style brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. She's not only reshaping the narrative around fashion, but is also inspiring others to embrace a more sustainable and mindful approach to their wardrobe choices. Get ready to delve into a conversation that explores the intersection of fashion, sustainability, and positive changes. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a writer-activist that is fabulous and smart like Elle Woods and writes killer lines like Alison Swift. Everyone, please welcome Katie Ho. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming on, Katie. I really do appreciate <laughs> Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, when I reach out to you, I'm like, all right, she's cool. I want to talk to her. <laughs> but you know you never know you know social media we never know what happened to the messages or whatever or you might think like ah this weird ass guy just sent a message on me <laughs> no i was really excited to hear from you i think what you're doing on this podcast is really cool and like spotlighting these stories is really important so thank you yeah i was very happy to hear from you i really appreciate that yeah. Why don't you tell the immigrant nation where they can reach you before we start talking about your good stuff? Yeah, sure. So um, you can reach me on pretty much all socials at Katie Ho, so K-A-T-Y-H-O underscore. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, but I am kind of everywhere. And I also have a Substack newsletter that I update kind of haphazardly, um, which is katieho.substack.com. So. Hmm. Substack, I've heard that before. What is it really? Um, it's basically an independent writing platform. So it's a way for writers to get their work out there and kind of build their own audience um, instead of having to go through other publications. It's kind of a good way for writers to be a bit more independent and have some more control over their work. Mm, apparently, mm -hmm. it's very positive, too, that there's not much negativity towards each other. Yeah, I think so. I think it's very supportive. Like, you basically can post whatever you want to write. People can comment on it or like your articles. Um, I think the thing I like about it most is it kind of acts as a newsletter as well. So you can build up a list of subscribers and get your work out there to different mm, people. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about your work, which, I, by the way, I read some of your stuff. I love it. Oh, thank Christine. you. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you share some of your background, your personal background? Yeah, so I guess 
in the context of this podcast, I was kind of wondering if I would be a good fit because I'm not an immigrant myself, but my parents are. Um, and I have been really learning more from my parents about their stories. I think there's still so much that I need to learn from them. So I don't know everything. Um, but yeah, my parents were both refugees. They've kind of been displaced to various different places. Um, we're ethnically Chinese, but both my parents were born in Vietnam. Mm. And yeah, because of war, they kind of had to be displaced to various different places and then eventually ended up being placed in Canada when they were just kids and having me in Calgary. Um, so I grew up in Calgary. It was really interesting experience um, as a person of color because Calgary is, I think it's still pretty diverse, but it's still pretty white dominant in the culture. Um, so yeah, I grew up there and then I moved to Vancouver for university and studied at UBC. Um, yeah, and now after graduating, I've been doing all sorts of things, um, mostly focusing on my writing and working for startups. Um, I'm really passionate about intersectional feminism, social justice, and sustainability. So those are all kind of areas that I mm -hmm. like to focus on in my work. That's awesome. About your parents. So were, they were born in Vietnam, but they're ethnically yeah. Chinese. Yeah, exactly. Do they ever, do they ever acknowledge themselves as Vietnamese, or are they Chinese that was born in Vietnam? Yeah, I think they very much identify with being Chinese, but born in Vietnam because our culturally we're still very Chinese in terms of the holidays we celebrate. Um, we speak Cantonese, not Vietnamese. Although my parents know a little bit because of growing up there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting just hearing about their experiences um, growing up in Vietnam. And I think at the time there was kind of some political tensions between China and Vietnam. And so they were treated a little bit differently because of that. Um, so, yeah, I think they still very much identify with being Chinese, even though they were born in Vietnam. Yeah, very interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming because of was it the the Vietnam War or was it the other things that made them move to Canada? Yeah, I guess I should brush up on the history of this, but I believe in in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, there were there were some tensions between China and Vietnam, um, and so yeah, that kind of resulted in some more. Um, yeah, I know they had to kind of evacuate their villages, and especially for Chinese people, it was not a very good time to be living in Vietnam. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I've heard stories of like my family members being detained by the Vietnam police because they thought that they were working with the Chinese government or something. Um, just because of the fact that they were ethnically Chinese. Um, yeah, I think my grandpa was actually held in one of the jails for quite a while until they realized he <laughs> had nothing to do with that. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of, yeah, obviously not an ideal time to mm -hmm. be living there as a Chinese person. For sure. Obviously, they went through the traumatic experiences and they didn't know about psychologists or therapy. The yeah. only way for them to do is just keep on going. 
And then they had Katie. Mm-hmm. They tried to pass that t- trauma towards Katie. <laughs> how's how's your relationship with mom and dad, with them going through that, and you, you know, kind of living it through them? Yeah, I really like that you point that out because I feel like there is a lot of intergenerational trauma that happens with so many immigrant families, or yeah, just so many immigrant or refugee families and. A lot of the time, the parents don't really, you know, they never had the chance to learn about mental health. It's partially in the culture and then also just part of going through so much. Like, you don't have time to think about mental health. You're just trying to survive, right? So, yeah, I think it definitely had an effect on how they parented me, how they deal with emotions now. Um, And so I think when I was younger, it was really difficult to deal with because I also had no awareness of I didn't know what intergenerational trauma was I didn't know what my parents had been through you know when you're a kid you're just you're just like oh I just want to go to sleepovers and parties with my friends you know (laughs) you're like (laughs) totally (laughs) on a different page Um, and it's so different from what my parents went through when Mm. they were that age Mm. Um, so I think now having grown up and having learned a bit more um my relationship with my parents has improved. I think, yeah, it's I it's in a much better place now. Not that it was ever bad, but I mm-hmm. think I just have a better understanding of where they're coming from, why they act the way they do. Um, and yeah, I think I just understand them a little bit better now. You've forgiven them? <laughs> yes, I I don't think I've, I've ever been upset with them about that per se, but it's just... Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I've just learned to understand like, oh, this is why they act this way. And I think it, it just gives me a better ability to like understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. What do you think that gave you that wisdom of realizing that why and, you know, what makes them decide things? Why we're so, why we're so strict towards you? What mm-hmm. helped you think of that? Yeah, I think just learning a lot about what they've been through um especially during the pandemic i was actually isolating with them in calgary Mm. so it gave us a lot of chances to talk and for me to learn about their stories um so i would actually like quite often sit down with my parents and ask them to tell me some of the stories of them growing up and i would take notes and yeah, I, my hope is one day to turn that into a book or a series of short stories or something. Um, but yeah, I, I really had the chance to kind of put myself in their shoes through that kind of writing exercise and learn more about their perspective. Because basically, I've, I've been writing these stories as if I am them from the per- first person perspective. So it really forced me to be like, hey, like, what was my dad thinking when he went through that moment? And how did that affect the person he is today? Um, So yeah, I think that really helped is just talking to my parents and learning their stories and putting myself in their shoes. Because yeah, I don't think I'd, I'd ever done that before. And most people probably don't do that as well. So I think it's it's really important. I encourage everyone to just talk to their parents and yeah. hear more about what they've experienced. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable to ask questions because you're you're scared. You know, you're scared of like, what if I find out something that, you know, 
that very scary or why did they do that or or whatever it is you know it's hard especially like us growing up Asians looking at our parents are like they're gods they cannot make mm-hmm. any mistakes you know <laughs> dad is superman mom is superwoman like they don't make mistakes but to know for us to know that they actually made mistakes they're actually humans they were actually teenagers one day making the same mistake as us it's I think it's liberating more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like such a big moment growing up when you realize your parents aren't perfect and they're just people like you and they've been through stuff and they're flawed. And yeah, it's it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting experience to because on the one hand, you're like your entire belief system that you built up when you're younger is completely shattered. But at the same time, it's, I think it brings down those walls and it allows you to connect with your parents more. And yeah, I think it also allows you to feel more able to just be human and not expect yourself to be perfect either. Amen. Amen. Speaking of your art, your writing, like I told you, I read a lot. One of my favorite is guilty party. Oh, thank you. That one was fire. I even <laughs> wrote it out. Uh, it says, Your refugee parents, weathered by the grief of their own fragment stories, pass these lessons onto you and call it love. Work hard, earn your place. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, it's not their fault. So why you not grant yourself the same grace? Fire. Oh. <laughs> I love that last line, how you, you just... No pun intended. You just tie them up perfectly. How do you feel that now? That with that question, how do you not grant yourself the same grace? Hmm. Yeah, I think I struggled with that a lot growing up. Is just feeling, I don't know, feeling this sense of guilt. And yeah, I don't know. I I've always been bad with dealing with that emotion. Um, I'm not sure why. I still don't know why that is exactly. Um, But yeah, I think it's easy to be hard on ourselves, especially, yeah, like having immigrant parents and feeling like you kind of have to not necessarily like live up to their expectations. I think I'm lucky my parents never like pressured me too much to do anything. Um, But, you know, you still want to make them proud and you still want to make them happy. and also just knowing everything that they've gone through and everything they did to build the life that I have now, um, having come here with basically nothing, it's it's very easy for me to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough because they did all of this and they built this entire life off of nothing. What am I doing? So I think it's, um, it's easy to kind of feel that sense of guilt. Um, so yeah, it's still something I, I think I grapple with, but I think I, I've gotten better at being kinder to myself and not so hard on myself. <laughs> yeah, like what you said there, you got to give yourself grace. Mm-hmm. You're just yeah, human, exactly. you know? Mm-hmm. I also like that you write journals. When Thanks. did you start doing that? And how often do you journal? Do you write journal every day? Uh, I wish, <laughs> but I don't journal every day right now. Like. 
if I had the time, I absolutely would. Um, but yeah, I try to journal at least on a weekly basis. Um, and definitely on a monthly basis, I like to reflect on the past month and then the month ahead and what I want to achieve. Um, cause yeah, I used to just do one big reflection at the end of each year, like new year's resolutions and everything. And I realized like, that's not as effective as reflecting every single month on what mm. you want to do. Um, cause yeah, I think as everyone knows, like you kind of start off strong in January and then by like <laughs> March, you probably have started to fall off of your goals. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to kind of reflect each month on how life is going. Um, and yeah, it's a good way to check in on yourself. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's helped me better deal with my own emotions. I've loved journaling ever since I learned how to write basically. Um, and it's always just been a great outlet to be able to process my thoughts in a safe space where, you know, like no one else is there to judge you and you're just there to express your feelings and let them all out. And I think it's like one of the healthiest ways <laughs> to deal with things. It is. Yeah. Do you ever read back the things that you wrote? Oh, I do. It's so funny. Yeah, I will read back like stuff that I wrote in high school. And I'm like, wow, oh, no. <laughs> I was so dramatic back then. <laughs> we all are or were. Yeah. <laughs> That's I'm funny. sure I'll look back on what I write today and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, what was I doing? <laughs> okay, that's a great thing that you mentioned. So you're reading all those things you were worried about. I don't know, your crush might not like you or, oh, I might get A minus instead of A plus. <laughs> What does it teach you reading those experiences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think actually on the note of parents, I I definitely had a lot of entries with frustration <laughs> towards my parents. Um, and yeah, it's crazy because I think, I don't even know if this is just an immigrant thing. I think it might be like a worldwide thing, like a universal human thing, but like, realizing your your parents were actually right sometimes <laughs> so like i'll look back and i'll be like oh i don't know why mom was upset that i did that and then mm. now looking back i was i'm like wow like my mom actually taught me pretty well <laughs> so i hope you send mom a text mom remember that moment i'm sorry <laughs> you were right <laughs> Yeah, I do tell her nowadays, like sometimes when I when I don't know what to do in a situation, I'm like, oh, what, what would my mom tell me? And she's not always right. Mm. Um, but I think she is wiser than I used to give her credit for when I was younger. <laughs> don't we all, right? Like We think that <laughs> like our moms or dads are dummies that just wants to give us food and make us safe and <laughs> shelter us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but other than other other than that they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's 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 nice to hear that, you know, you're thinking about mom and dad more when you're going through things and making the proper decisions. I'm sure with their experiences, you, it really mold you and help you decide what kind of path you're going to take. Like when you were a president for Amnesty International, I'm pretty sure that's their main reason. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You really dug back into the, the history. I, I appreciate the research. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think they definitely played a big role. I mean, they've never really 
told me what to do or what to be, which I really appreciate about them. But I think they have really shaped my values, not even consciously, but just through their way of being. They've really shaped my values. And I think learning about their background as refugees, it really made me care about human rights issues and the experiences of people around the world, especially people who are being displaced by things like war or climate change um, and all these issues that are we're facing today. Because, um, yeah, I like look at people in Afghanistan right now, for example, who have to flee the country because it's so dangerous for them. And I can see a, a bit of myself in them because my family has also been through not exactly the same thing, but similar situations and so I can understand what it's like to go through those things um and I think me as someone who is in a position of privilege who lives in Canada you know has a safe place to to live um I have all these privileges um that those people don't so I think it's kind of I've kind of taken on that responsibility of feeling like I, I need to speak up for those people. So that's kind of why I gotten involved with Amnesty and why in a lot of my writing, I, I really try to spotlight those issues so people can be aware and hopefully help. Mm-hmm. What does Amnesty International exactly, their main goal, what do they do? Yeah, Amnesty is a great organization. They're nonpartisan and their goal is just to uphold the human rights of people around the world. So they'll just keep an eye out for if there's any human rights abuses happening around the world, they'll speak up about it, they'll do activism campaigns. So when I was working with them, we did a lot of like fundraising events or events to raise awareness about issues that were happening around the world. And then we would also do petitions and letter writing campaigns to send to um, those governments that are kind of imposing human rights abuses on some other people and yeah you'd be surprised that sometimes it is successful um having them feel that international pressure from all of our amnesty chapters around the world and seeing that people are keeping an eye on them people care about what's going on um it does lead to some people being released from being prisoners of war for example and things like that so yeah, I think it's a great organization, what they do. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of work, but there's so much work to be done. Do you yeah. ever feel that being overwhelmed, just saying like, what are we doing here? Like, we 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 help these guys. There's like 50 of them waiting for us to, it, like, it never ends. Mm-hmm. It does feel overwhelming for sure. I think... Yeah, as someone being in the activism space, I see it happening to me, to other people in the space where you just have this activism burnout where you care so much about so many issues and you're constantly trying to keep track of all the things that are happening in the world. And it's it can get pretty exhausting for sure. So I think one thing that has helped me is recognizing the point when you know everything that you need to know and you like at that point if you keep going down the rabbit hole you're just unnecessarily stressing yourself out more um 
so yeah, like when I'm researching an issue, I'll learn to recognize when I'm at that point and like when it's causing me more harm than it is educating me, then I I need to stop at that point. So I think that's really good. And also just like taking breaks from social media, taking breaks from the news is important. Um, I wouldn't say to completely step away from those things because it's important to be aware of what's going on in the world. But I think learning to limit that for myself has been really good. And then also um, knowing other people in the space where we can kind of just vent to each other. And it, it feels good to at least know that there are other people who are also doing the work and who share your values and to not feel so alone. A hundred percent. But does it concern you sometimes that you might end up in an echo chamber that there's no new in ideas coming in in that cocoon of community that you have? Yeah, I think that is definitely a concern. Um, I personally have always been open to people with other perspectives. Um, I think growing up in Calgary really taught me that because I don't necessarily agree with most of the politics um, <laughs> over there. Um, I won't say all of it, but like, yeah, I think just growing up with around a lot of people who have different belief systems compared to me, um, it's, I kind of had to be open to that. And so I've always been open to having those conversations with people. Um, and yeah, even on social media, I think it's really harmful when people use phrases like, oh, unfollow me if you don't agree, or I'm going to unfollow you because you don't agree with me. I think it's way more productive to be able to have a conversation with someone and I have actually been able to have conversations with people where we're like hey we don't necessarily see eye to eye but we can at least understand each other more and respect each other's opinions more um unfortunately I have seen people who disagree and like they'll like they would have unfollowed me because they disagree with what I say and I wish they wouldn't but <laughs> yeah I think that being open-minded is really important. And then also for me personally, also like looking at news sources from different sides of the political spectrum is important. And yeah, just occasionally checking in and being like, okay, what are these other beliefs and arguments that are out there? Because I think you can't really be confident in what you believe until you understand what the other perspectives are. So yeah, I think it's something everyone should do even though it's uncomfortable yeah you cannot be married to an idea yeah it has it's, it has to be changing all the time you know whatever it is a political mm -hmm. religious whatever it is you have to look for other people's perspective or else you'll never grow mm -hmm. right yeah exactly you mentioned you grew up in calgary and you mentioned also that calgary is very quote-unquote white how was your, let's say, high school days in Calgary? Were you in a very um, mixed uh, group or mixed school? Or was it only Katie is the only Chinese or Asian in the classroom? It was, my high school was pretty diverse, I would say. Um, I think compared to living in Vancouver now, where there's so many Asian people, like probably, I don't even know what percentage, but probably 50% or more. 
Um, so compared to Vancouver, it was not very much, but um, it was still pretty diverse in that there were people of different ethnicities and races there. Um, but yeah, there's kind of this, yeah, there's this kind of underlying feeling of the white kids are the cool kids. And if you get to hang out with them, you're, you're kind of cool too. And, and the Asian kids are kind of known as, you know, like that nerdy stereotype. Um, so I feel like there is still this like unspoken hierarchy in terms of the way people perceive you. Um, yeah, I, I still remember like just some of the things that I would hear that some of the white girls would say and like well, what would they say yeah like i just remember one of them was talking about one of her asian friends and she was like yeah like she's one of the good asians <laughs> and like <laughs> saying stuff like that so it, there is this kind of unspoken hierarchy and yeah i think just growing up with that definitely i had a lot of insecurities when i was younger um that didn't, yeah, they, luckily, I think I've moved past them today, but I think just feeling that sense of inferiority, feeling like I wasn't cool or beautiful or worthy. Um, and yeah, I think that really weighed on me when I was younger, but actually coming to Vancouver really helped me through that because I was able to find a lot healthier ways of identifying with being Asian hmm. compared to being in Calgary. What do you mean by that healthier identification uh, that you're Asian? Yeah, I think in Calgary, I felt always like I was representing my race. So like, whenever people saw me, they would just see that, oh, she's Asian, she's different. Whereas coming to Vancouver, there's so many Asian people that there's so many different ways of expressing who you are. It's so liberating to feel like you're you're not limited to this box of like, oh my gosh, I need to represent my entire race and everything that I do. Um, when I came here, I was just like, I can just be me. Like I can just mm. be a person. And mm. I like, when people look at me, they don't see like, oh, she's an Asian person. Like they'll actually see me for who I am. At least I hope so. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I see that. I understand that too. Like, but you know what? I don't mind the pressure. Okay. You don't? No. I'm like, yo, good. I want to be the greatest example of our people, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, to say that, I don't know, let's say like, I'm, I just finished coaching my son. I'm like, I'm the coach. I want to show them that, hey, we are smart people. You know, we are kind. We are understanding. We are this. We are that. I have no problem representing our people, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, of course, yeah. it's a lot of pressure. If it's like it every day, I'm like, come on, I just want to, I don't know. I just want to dance. I just want to twerk. I don't know. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we want to have yeah. fun too. But I, I understand that. You touch on this a little bit, the model minority. Asians mm -hmm. are model minority. What do you think propagates that? Oh, that's a big question. I feel like it, it goes back so far. <laughs> that, mm. I mean, even just looking back to the history of Canada, where the very first, some of the very first Asian people to be in Canada were the Chinese railroad workers. And they mm -hmm. were basically brought here 
to work on the Canadian Pacific Railway. They and were paid peanuts. Yeah, they were paid way less than everyone else. And then after building the railroad, they there was the head tax and they like there were so many barriers to them bringing their families over and becoming citizens and getting the right to vote. And so I feel like it's entrenched in our history where Asians are kind of expected to like work and um, contribute to society, but not get so much in return. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really, really harmful. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly where else it would come from. I guess it's also kind of in our culture to, I think like with my parents, for example, like they always taught me like, Hey, just work hard. And if you work hard, you'll, you'll go places and you'll be successful. And I don't think that mentality is wrong necessarily, but in the context of like culture and race and everything. um, Yeah. I guess it like, it can be harmful in the sense that um, it can, I don't know take away the effect that racism has in that if we just believe, oh, we just have to pull ourselves up with the bootstraps and work harder and we'll be fine. And that can be really harmful to both us and like other um, BIPOC communities, like like Black communities, for example. Like if we look at their struggles and we just say, oh, you should have just worked harder. Like <laughs> that's like, I think it kind of takes away from the more deep systemic issues at mm. play. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with working hard, but I think we also need to recognize there's other deeper things that kind of create barriers for people of color to succeed. Yeah. Also, majority of Asians, Southeast Asians at least, we're very like work hard work and shut up. You know, we yeah. don't like standing out. You know, we don't we don't have Katie right here showing her beauty. Like, hey, by the way, we're beautiful and smart. That doesn't exist, you know. It's always like work hard and be quiet. Don't be, don't be noticed. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, I definitely noticed that, and I think that I really admire that. I think that that's it's great to just have that humility and be able to just work hard and like. That's it. But yeah, I think it it places us in an interesting position when we're working like in this Western world where it it's a bit more individualistic and it's about like standing out and like making a name for yourself. And it's very different um, mm-hmm. compared to like maybe the more collectivist cultures in Asia. So, yeah. yeah. How do you find the balance of your Asian-ness, <laughs> for the lack of a better word? And you're being a Canadian. Yeah, I think it's still something I navigate. I think I I have never really felt like I belonged anywhere, which is a very weird feeling. I think the, the strongest sense of belonging I've ever felt is here in Vancouver because of the, the strong Asian community here or Asian Canadian community here. Um, but yeah, I just have never really felt like I truly 100% belonged anywhere. Like growing up here in Canada, if you're a person of color, you're still kind of not seen as 100% Canadian all the time. Although I think everyone is, but Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, you'll still get questions of, hey, like, where are your parents from? Where are your grandparents from? Where are you from? Um, And yeah, (laughs) exactly. So whereas like with my white friends, like, I don't think they really get asked that as often. Um, And I've also gone back to Asia, like I visited Hong Kong um, because my family is Cantonese. So I feel like if I were to belong anywhere in Asia, I would be there. Um, but even going back there, like my Chinese isn't that great. I I didn't grow up there. I don't like really act the way that a, a person who grew up in Asia would act. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it's a complex identity. But I think there's also a lot of people who feel similarly. And I think I find community with people who kind of have that similar experience. Mm, and helping yeah. each other to find that whatever that identity that you not want to be, but are. Yeah, mm. exactly. <laughs> I saw that you founded Attire Media. Let's talk about that. What is this about? What's your goal? Yeah, so Attire Media was something I started in university. I was learning about sustainable fashion back then. So I've always really loved fashion. And growing up, it was also a way for me to connect with other people, especially with that, what we were talking about earlier, the lack of a sense of belonging. It was a way for me to feel like I belonged and I fit in, like everyone was shopping at like American Eagle and Hollister and Abercrombie back in the day. So <laughs> um, I would go with my friends to the mall and we would shop there and I'd be like, wow, I fit in. I I feel like I belong here. Um, so I think fashion has always been something that I really paid attention to when I was younger, maybe as a way to be kind of like a chameleon and to feel like I, I could kind of I don't know, identity switch into someone who would belong in that in that community. And so, yeah, I've always really loved fashion, really cared about it. I've always cared a lot about climate change, too, ever since I learned about it in elementary school. And so, yeah, in university, I met this entrepreneur who worked in sustainable fashion. And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. I didn't know that those two things could go together. And I ended up interning for her doing like PR, social media, marketing for a summer. And through that, I just learned so much about all the issues in the fashion industry in terms of how they treat their workers who are predominantly usually Asian women um, and also the impacts on the environment, as well as like the racism and the fat phobia, transphobia that is in the fashion industry. Um So, yeah, I just started learning about all these issues that I really care about as someone who cares about social justice and sustainability and that connection with fashion. So basically, my goal with Attire Media was to raise awareness about all these issues and teach consumers what's actually going on in the fashion industry, because most publications, they don't talk about that because they're just getting paid with advertising dollars from fashion companies. So they have to speak kindly of them you know and like kind of praise them and gloss over the things that they're hiding so yeah i really wanted to use that platform to raise awareness about Mm. all those issues for the people that doesn't know in a nutshell what is a sustainable fashion is Mm, that's a great question i feel like it's such 
a complex answer because there's so many components to it. But I think there's kind of two main aspects to sustainability in my mind. So there's the environmental side. So I think a truly sustainable fashion brand, they'll put consideration into the materials they're making and, you know, making sure that they're using less water and energy and less pollutants in making the clothes. But there's also the aspect of making sure those clothes actually last a long time. So quality is also really important. Um, yeah, like how long will the piece of clothing last? Um, there's some companies like Patagonia that will repair the clothes. So that's a great way to keep the clothes lasting longer. Um, yeah, so like minimizing the environmental impact of the clothes, ideally making sure it's circular so that the clothes don't end up going to the landfill. That would be ideal. And then there's also the human rights ethics side where I don't think a piece of clothing can be sustainable if it was made using like child labor or uh, modern slavery, which unfortunately still happens a lot in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, So they also need to make sure they're paying their workers a living wage um, and giving them safe work conditions and treating them well, Um, which you wouldn't think would be so hard to do, but it's still such a widespread issue. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I grapple with this question all the time. Like, is there like one bad guy on top of that company making all the decision? And I don't think so. I think it's, I forgot the word is, but he's passing on a little bad decision and then pass it to the next guy, bad decision. Then let's say the president says, we need to make money. We pass it on the VP. The VP says, okay, we do make, need to make money. What do you think we could do? And people will make adjustments like, oh, maybe we could ask these poor people to make clothes for free and these kids. You know, we're giving them money. So what's, what's the point, right? So I, th- I think that's what it is. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's the nature of the beast, right? It's speaking of that. How do you propose for companies to make their margins if they don't create new products? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you can continue making new products, but they need to be ethically and sustainably made and high quality. And that is going to come with, you know, selling them at a higher price point. And so that then that comes in the issue of like, okay, some people won't be able to afford it. But also, if you look back at how fashion was consumed back in the day, like people would save up to buy a piece of clothing and it would be a really special thing to like get a new dress or a new a new shirt or a new pair of shoes. Like it would be a big deal because you would save up for it and it would be like a very deliberate decision. So I think consumers also need to start changing their minds around that and like fast fashion has trained us to want to just have a bunch of new clothes instantaneously every week. And that's not how it should be. So I think all of society kind of needs to change their mind around that. But I think with companies, like if they start doing things more ethically and sustainability, they can justify selling at a higher price. Um, And so they can still make their profits off that. And there's also so many new business models, like there's clothing rentals that are starting to become more popular. Clothing rentals? 
Yeah. So if you produce like a really high quality piece of clothing, people can keep rewearing it, right? So there's companies like Rent the Runway, where you can basically pay for a clothing subscription. And every month, I think it's every month, you can get a new set of clothes. And then at the end of the month, you return them and you get new ones. And the idea is everyone's kind of sharing these clothes Mm. and you're still getting that novelty and these companies are still getting paid, but um, you're kind of avoiding that problem of clothing waste or producing too many new clothes. So that's also an interesting new model. Um, Yeah. I think just be creative. I think there's so many ways to change things up and it doesn't have to continue being done the same way it's always been done um, with fast fashion. So I think there's, yeah, so many creative solutions. Yeah, dude, I, my clothes are old. I just mix them up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all, like, <laughs> get a shirt, a, a pants, and maybe put a good, nice jacket. Your jacket hides everything, you know? <laughs> just wear a yeah, good, layering nice... layering is key. <laughs> exactly. Get a beautiful, nice jacket, high-quality jacket. You're good. You mm-hmm. just mix it up with whatever, you know. I don't need new clothes. I don't like. I don't like shopping anyway. It gets. I get tired. <laughs> you know. Same. Yeah, it's so exhausting to go shopping. <laughs> so much pressure. Yeah. You know. It's a lot of work. Also, thrift shops. This is one thing I love, by the way. That the new generation, like your generation, I'm a bit older than you, that going to thrift shop and it's becoming a cool thing, like. Hells yeah, dude. There's some good clothes there. Yeah, it's so much fun. I think I love that it's becoming a cooler thing because mm. yeah, I remember when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, you got that at a thrift store, <laughs> like gross. But now it's so cool. And yeah. I found so many hidden gems at thrift stores. I honestly haven't bought any new clothing in so long because Mm -hmm. you can get everything you need at a thrift store so i think that's another fantastic solution and there's so many different price points as well so i think it can be a really affordable solution for people who don't have the money um and yeah there's so much variety out there Mm. i think the clothes are so unique at thrift stores too um yeah so i think that's yeah that's a great way that's a great way to embrace sustainable fashion yeah, and their history behind it, you know? Like, if you get a nice jacket from the 70s, weathered, cool already, automatic cool, and cheap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that there's a story behind everything. Everything's so unique, and I feel like so many things that I've thrifted um, are co- good conversation starters because people will mm. be like, oh, I really love that sweater, and then you can tell them the story of where you found it. Um so yeah, it's so much more fun than just being like, oh yeah, I bought it online from uh, Shein. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was just gonna say Shein. <laughs> yeah, it's just I, I don't like Shein. By the way, I don't care if they're this. I know, like it's like stop buying stuff, dude. Like how yeah. many how many blouse do you need? Seriously, how many? One exactly. is maybe two is enough. Put a jacket on, and you're good. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's so bad. Um, And everyone knows how bad the company is. um, Mm. But they still somehow make money. And yeah, I guess there's some people who unfortunately don't care or like they don't understand the impact that their actions are having. So 
Yeah, I think on my part, I just do my best to educate people about that. Mm. And I have had people who follow me say, hey, I started thrifting because of you. So mm, yeah, it's it's cool. good to see that, you know, I think no matter how big your platform is, or even if you're just talking to your group of close friends, you can mm. make a difference. Yeah. And by the way, the, the quality is garbage. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you wear it once and then like, it's broken. Like H&M is the worst, one of the worst. It looks mm-hmm. nice. Oh, it's beautiful. You wash it, bleh, garbage. I'm like, no, I'm yeah. not going to spend $30 for a shirt that I'm going to wear once. Exactly. It's terrible. And yeah, I think a metric that we kind of use in sustainable fashion that you might be interested in mm. is called cost per wear. Mm. So instead of just looking at the raw cost, you need to calculate, okay, how many times am I actually going to wear this? And then mm. what's the cost per wear? So yeah, if you're buying like a $30 shirt, but you're only going to wear it once for like a special event or something, um, is it really worth it compared to like a $30 shirt that you thrift, um, but you can see yourself wearing it for years and years and years, um, mm. the cost per wear is going to be a lot lower, right? So yeah, I think just thinking about the longevity and rewearability mm. of things is important too. Yeah. How do you think the intersection of climate justice and slow fashion can contribute to a more sustainable future? Mm. The intersection of climate justice and sustainable fashion. Yeah, I think that there, I mean, it's important to not only consider the environmental impact, but the human side of things, like mm-hmm. like we were talking about earlier. Um, so, yeah, I think it's still a complex issue, but mm-hmm. we are seeing companies that are trying to make a more positive impact and they're working with garment workers and artisans to pay them fairly mm. and yeah, I think it it all connects because when clothes are not made sustainably, mm. um, they tend to affect the health of the garment workers and the, the environment in that area. So it's like a lot of places in, in China and in Asia, in Bangladesh, um, where not only are the workers being harmed, but also like there's so many pollutants being released into the air and the water and it's destroying the environment. And I think we also forget that we as humans are animals too. So when the environment gets harmed, we're harming ourselves basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, if we can create a system where we're treating our workers fairly and we're also producing clothes more sustainably, um, yeah, I think the solutions will go hand in hand in like protecting human life and protecting the environment um, It all sort of connects mm-hmm. together. You mentioned earlier that you get into climate change and sustainability fashion and all that stuff when you were younger. I saw that you wrote a piece called A Culture of Reduce, Reuse, and Recycle. Was that the beginning of it or was that the beginning of you going out and saying, yo, we need to do something or else? <laughs> yeah, it actually began, I think, when I was in grade four. Mm. Um, I think that was the first time I ever learned about climate change, or I think at the time we still called it global warming, but yeah, we were learning about like recycling and stuff like that. And I just, I don't know why I was just so passionate about it. Cause I, 
I guess I've always just had this strong sense of justice. So I was like, this is wrong. We should not be destroying <laughs> the planet like this. And so like little grade four me was really passionate about this. And hmm. I just randomly decided to campaign around the school. And <laughs> like I made these giant posters to teach people how to recycle and stuff. It was so random. Like, no one asked me to do that. Um, I love it. I don't know where that came from, but I guess, yeah, ever since I learned about it, I just, I really thought it was important. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Were there anyone that helped you out? Or was it just like this crazy person over here? I I don't even know. I think maybe my mom helped me buy supplies to make my poster. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. then, um, and then I asked my teacher for permission to like, put them around in the mm -hmm. school but yeah it was mostly just me i don't know what what got into me but it's it's still there apparently oh no way <laughs> amazing that's awesome <laughs> speaking of that like consume and all re recycle and reuse what's your opinion about paper straws oh i think i think they're a good solution i mean I guess I can't speak for people who I know for people with certain disabilities, they, mm. they rely on straws and they need them. So I can't speak for the impact that it's had on them. Mm. Um, for me, I think it's a great solution um, to, I think, especially here in Vancouver, we're transitioning to a lot more compostable things. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's really great to see. Um the only annoying thing is I'm a slow drinker, so usually the straw starts to get really soggy. <laughs> Me too, dude. I hate that. Hey, listen, yeah. I love Mother Nature, but I hate <laughs> that stupid ass straw. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I actually um I started using reusable metal straws and glass straws Girl, instead. I got and things to do. That's I'm way not better using that metal stupid straw. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I, what I do is I use the plastic straw and I try to reuse the plastic straw. Mm, That's yeah. what I do. That's I, good. I usually go to like, I don't know, like a fast food chain, whatever. I'll just grab 10 of them and then mm -hmm. keep it at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. I think ultimately the goal is just to reduce plastic waste. So as long as we're doing that, whatever way we're doing it is good. Yeah, I, I guess so, you know, but it's just, it's so difficult. Like, I, I am also I'm not I'm not like as big as you me I'm just like I do my part kind of situation you know mm -hmm. I'm not the type of person that's just gonna throw whatever on the street but <laughs> you know like try to recycle I grew up poor so like I when I use a lotion bottle bro you know when you pump it and nothing comes out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yo I opened that up bro I cut that up you know yeah you got to use it all. Because, you know, for some people, it's finished, right? Because nothing comes out. <laughs> no, dude, there's like one fourth of them is over there. It's just not getting stuck up, you know? Yeah. But, but then again, what are you going to do with the plastic? You're going to throw it away and then going to end up in the... I don't know where that it ends up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually great that you bring that up because I think a lot of like poor and even like Asian immigrant families, they have mm. a lot of really sustainable practices. They're not perfect, but it's like there's a lot of things that we do, I think, just in the name of being frugal that mm -hmm. are actually also sustainable. Yes. Like like we reuse all of our shopping bags. We <laughs> like use everything until it's completely done. Ziploc. Um, 
Yeah. And so I think we we do have a lot of great like sustainable practices that come from our culture. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like our background. Sometimes I'll see like, you know, those like Instagram reels are like, oh, uh, you don't have a cup for your plant? You can get your Coke litter, cut it in half and plant uh, whatever in it. I'm like, yo, we've been doing that since forever. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, <Don't>... exactly. <laughs> you, you're stealing our idea, man. <laughs> like one, I remember I was in the metro here. Metro is a subway system. And there's this girl. She's She has this bag of like, it says Zesto. I know Zesto was like a juice back home. And it's a Tetra pack. And they were making bags out of them. And I was mm-hmm. like, Yo, that's our product. That's so cool, you know? <laughs> like, I love that. I love that she's making it cool. Because that's the problem. It's, is it cool? Like the thrift shop. Like like mm-hmm. you said earlier, buying from thrift shop back then, like, ooh, you buy from thrift shop? What are you, uh, welfare? <laughs> but now it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really agree with that. I think... There's there's already so many solutions out there, and I feel like if if we all just started actually acting on them, like we would be able to make so much progress. But the problem is, people are like, "Oh, it's annoying. I, I don't want to do that, or it's not cool." And yeah, I think that's why I personally like using social media as a platform to kind mm-hmm. of make the sustainable lifestyle more appealing to people and show people mm-hmm. like, "Hey, you can actually enjoy your life and." Be stylish and you know have fun, but still care about sustainability, and mm-hmm. it doesn't have to take away from your life. I think people a lot of the time they view sustainability as a subtraction, mm-hmm. whereas I see it more as you're actually adding to your life by living by your values and valuing the things that you have a bit more. Um, yeah, I think it's like a net positive. And then you're also saving the planet that you live on and your own home. So, hells yeah. Yeah. Love it. I think we're there, but let's close up with this question. Mm-hmm. How do you picture a world that perfectly sustainable and follows slow fashion? Oh, perfectly sustainable. Wow, that's a big question. I think I. I don't know exactly what the solutions will look like, but I would like to see a world where all garment workers are treated with respect. They're they're paid above a living wage and what they deserve for their work. Um, and I think a world where people really value their clothes and they see it as something that really means a lot to them um, versus something that can just be thrown away really easily. Um, yeah, I would just like to see people really valuing the things that they own a little bit more and putting a lot of consideration into that and a world where companies are also very conscious about what they're making. And if if something can't be made in a sustainable way, it's not going to be made. Um, so I think ideally in the future, there will be no such thing as sustainable fashion because all fashion will be sustainable. I think that that would be the goal. That's beautiful. Again, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Oh, 
thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Before we close out, do you have any last remarks or if you want to say your Instagram account again, whatever? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my Instagram is Katie Ho, K-A-T-Y-H-O underscore. And my substack is katieho.substack.com. Um, and yeah, I would love to connect with more of you. And yeah, I just wanted to say thank you again, Aaron. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast if oh, you haven't already. That. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good evening. Yeah, you too. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Again, Katie, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa from Immigrants Life. I'll see you guys later.